Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Welcome to Oil and Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melkert, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for oil and gas upstream at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE and founded a small oil and gas consultancy and became a podcast podcast host. So we're recording live for the Offshore Technology Conference 2023 on Podcast Row in Hall E, booth 139. Big thanks to the Offshore Technology Conference for allowing us to be here. Even bigger thanks to Fifth Ring for sponsoring the Offshore Technology Con- Conference Podcast Pavilion. Fifth Ring is a global B2B marketing and communications agency with over 30 years of experience in the energy sector and beyond. And its presence in Houston, Aberdeen, and Singapore enables the agency to help companies all over the world build better brands and sell more stuff. Learn more about Fifth Ring by visiting fifthring.com. Link is in the show notes below. Special thanks to the sponsor of Oil & Gas Upstream, Oliva Gibbs, LLC. Oliva Gibbs provides clear legal solutions to complex oil, gas, and mineral law issues nationwide. You can learn more at oglawyers.com. And now I'd like to introduce today's guest. We have Dan Alford, president of ARC Specialties. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on today. Dan, tell us a little bit about yourself and about how you got to be president of ARC Specialties. Uh, well, I've been doing nothing but the oil fields since I got out of school in 1979, went to work for Hughes Tool. But in 1983, the entrepreneurial spirit got to me, and so I started a little company called ARC Specialties. And so I've had that name for uh, 40 years now. This is our 40th year. And what we do is uh, we're a robot integrator. So when, when robots come from the factory, it's kind of sad. They don't have anything on the end of their arm, no, no hand. <laughs> no hands, right? Yeah, and so somebody has to do that. They have to develop that gripper, that welder, the drill, the torch, whatever is necessary. And that's what a robot integration company does. And that's what we do here in Houston. We've got 65 people working now. And we have robots operating in 33 countries around the world. So, so how did you get to do that? How did that come about? <clears throat> well, you, you, you start small. So uh, the very first job I did as Orc Specialties back in 1983 was a hot tap at the plutonium plant in Idaho. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Being from the Department of Energy, I know exactly what that is. Uh, they call, there's a, they all have a euphemism. You call it the CPP, the chemical processing plant. But uh, in reality, that's plutonium. And they have a smokestack, eight foot in diameter, goes way up in the air. It's covered by several feet of concrete. And they wanted to do a, a observation port, so you had to drill through the concrete, slide a pipe in, <clears throat> and then we had to weld that smaller pipe into the stack and then cut the wall out. Wow. But they said, don't drop that slug that we cut out of the wall because the machine's down at the bottom. And, oh. and so if you, if you DOE guys had, had realized it was a 24-year-old kid in his garage, they might not have reacted well. But, but the system worked fine, and uh, it encouraged me to continue on, and, and here we are 
40 years later still building machines. Excellent, excellent. So how did you get into the oil and gas sector? Well, if you live in Houston, you're in oil and gas. Yeah, that's fair. Right, yeah. and so I worked for Hughes Tool. It was fascinating times because this was uh, late 70s. You know, oil was, oil was doing great. Uh, and there's so much technology in the oil field. And we found that what we do, we'll develop technologies in the oil field and we can transfer them to other industries. We're now doing electric cars and food and potatoes. But as you well know, because you're from our industry, uh, the challenges here are tremendous. The temperatures and pressures are so high that it requires technology that hasn't even been invented. And, and so it's been fun for me, you know, starting out in rock bits, drill pipes, blow preventers, valves and such. And from there, we've diversified onto almost every industry there is. Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely I've watched the uh, improvements, advancements, uh, creation of new technologies for application in, in oil and gas. Um, that was my job at the Department of Energy, was to build a portfolio of research projects using taxpayer dollars to benefit taxpayers through increasing um, the uh, security, national security, energy security, economic security, and environmental sustainability of oil and gas so that we would have the energy that we that we need for defense uh, and that we need for our, our lifestyles. And being able to transfer those technologies worldwide. So I imagine some of your technology, some of your work is uh, used uh, all over the world? Oh, absolutely. You know. Uh and, it, and it's all the same problems coming up over and over again. You just have to recognize the patterns. It might not be exactly the same part, but it's probably the same problem. And so we'll reintroduce a piece of technology we develop, makes us look smart. In reality, it's called analogous thinking. Analogous thinking. I like that. I like that. So um, tell us about your um, technology that you're presenting here at OTC. Uh, this week. We've got a couple, and uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be here in the big hall at OTC. We've been coming to this uh, this convention for decades, and uh, initially we were way back out in the parking lot. That's right. You know, and uh, I asked them, when will we get to be in the big hall? They said, you probably won't live long enough. <laughs> but uh, but then, you know, we were perseverant, and uh, for the last five years we've been here in the main hall, and what we're showing off this time is a, an interesting project. You know, we're known for our welding stuff because, you know, our name is Arc Specialties, but in this case, it's actually a bolting application. So our friends at TransOcean came to us and they asked us to develop a robot application for running uh, riser on drill ships. Because So riser, as you well know, is 70 foot long. Uh, it's a huge bolt flange, about four and a half foot in diameter. It's bolted together with bolts that weigh 50 pounds. And so you need to make a two mile, you know, whatever your, your, the depth of the ocean is there, two miles, let's say, a riser string. You have to bolt all that together before you start drilling, and you have to take it all apart when you're finished drilling. And it's a dangerous, tedious job. You're having to torque these bolts to 18,000 foot-pounds. And so that, by definition, is a robot job. Dull, dirty, dangerous. <laughs> That's right. But, but let's, let's, uh, let's back up just a little bit. So um, not everybody who listens to uh, our podcast is an oil and gas person, uh, much less uh, an offshore subject matter expert. So, so when we drill offshore, uh, we have uh, drill ships that uh, sail out there or are moved out there or however... Um, in order to drill in these waters, especially ultra deep water, and the water can be very, very deep, like 18, like uh, 10 to 12 to 15,000 feet of water. So 
Um, the Deepwater Horizon, the Macondo well, was in just over 5,000 feet of water. And then it was buried deep into the earth, 18,000 feet. So, so we have experience with um, lots of uh, uh, challenges associated with ultra-deep water. Thank God that has been the only accident, serious accident we've had here in the United States. And, of course, we learned a lot about, about that. But the notion is that um, the bottom floor, the bottom of the floor of the drill ship will open up and uh, the water is held out through pressure. And that is how the drill is able to be taken from the drilling floor through the bottom of the boat down to the formation. Through the riser. Through the riser. Now the riser is what protects the drill bit and all of the casing, drill casing, uh, from the ocean, from the currents, from the corrosiveness of the water, the temperature of the water. And so this outer uh, chamber, I guess is the way to put it, because it's it's times, it's several times uh, wider than right. the, uh, the drill It becomes the annulus for the chips to come up around the drill pipe. And so it creates that environment. Uh, onshore, we don't have risers. We only have them offshore because of the water, right? right. So, so um, it's very important that the ocean be protected from the drilling process as well. Uh, so that's the function of the riser. So having this outer tube uh, surrounding, uh, connecting the drill ship to the seafloor is what is the function of the riser. And so if you have really deep water, you can't send a diver down there to do the work. So help us with that again. Right, so that all has to be done on, on, on the deck. So my robots aren't going below the ocean, you know, the surface of the ocean. They're all working on the drill ship. So, but it'll take the first 70 foot of riser, bolt the next 70 foot to it, lower it down, and continue until it until you land it on the blow-up preventer down on the ocean floor. Yeah, yeah. So the robot comes into play because, why? Because it's a dangerous job, you know. Uh, how would you like to pick up a 70-pound bolt and torque it to 18,000 foot-pounds? No, you know, it's beyond human capacity. Yeah. So you're having to use these heavy torque wrenches, and, and these forces are just so large that to, to remove people from the red zone, which is the dangerous zone, you need to completely eliminate the tasks that they're having to do. And that's not easy, because the problem with a drill ship, unlike a factory where the robot is used to working, in a factory everything is well ordered, things are in little holders, the fixtures hold the parts. Well, on a drill ship, we don't know where the riser is, we don't know where the bolts are, so we're having to use vision and laser and all sorts of interesting technologies for the robot to orient itself with this riser and the bolts. Here's the problem. In the factory, we don't have to deal with oysters and seaweed and fish. That's right. <laughs> yeah, That's but right. when we're pulling the riser out, you know, because as I said, you know, you, you make the riser when you start the well, but then you break and remove the riser when you're finished with the well. So and by making, mean you assemble. Assembling is making. Uh, each length of riser, and that's where the bolts come in, yeah. connecting the other one. About how many bolts are there around? Well, it depends on the brand of riser. We, we've got a system for but the But it's not one. No, no, it's six. And, and that's the reason we have two robots, because any of our listeners that have ever put the head on an engine, you know, you have to torque the head bolts evenly. And if you only have one wrench, you, you use a star pattern or something. But if you have two robots, we, they're running asynchronously. And so one will wait on the other. One will be ready to torque, and it'll wait patiently while its friend, the other robot, gets ready. And then we torque them simultaneously, which helps to improve uh, the integrity of the joint. You know, as you said, 
oil spills are not an option in the Gulf of Mexico. That's right. That's and by right. having this simultaneous torquing pattern, we improve that sealing integrity. Yeah, so uh, create an analogy for us on changing a tire and those bolts. <clears throat> okay, same thing. If, if you've been taking your tire off properly, you don't just start it at 12 o'clock and work all the way around. You you start at 12, then you go to six o'clock, take the bolts off, and, you're, and you remove them that way. And then when you put the bolts back on, you, you want to have the two bolts, the first two that you torque to torque levels should be opposing each other. Otherwise, the wheel could be crooked. Right, right. So it creates that balance, and in case of a riser, it creates a better seal. Much better seal. Better, better seal. Okay, so now you've got a sample of a bolt here. Oh, yeah, I brought one here. So yeah. This, so here, here's, this is a 70-pound bolt. Of course, this one's not because it's uh, we made this one out of plastic. It's right. just a model. Right. Oh, right. That's this? 70 pounds. It's, what, about 18 inches? Right, about 18 inches long, about 4 inches in diameter. This thing's a beast in the real world. Yeah. But for a robot, it's, it's no big deal. So the robot finds the bolt. It finds the hex because any of our listeners that have ever put a wrench on a bolt know that you have to orient the wrench with the hex. Otherwise it won't It won't go turn. on there. Yeah. Right. And so using vision, you know, because robots now have a sense of touch. They now have vision. They and, uh, and so the robot finds the hex, grabs the bolt, picks it out of the bolt bin, starts to thread it into the hole that it used its vision to determine where the location was. But as it's spinning the bolt in, it might detect that, that the bolt's not turning uh, as easily as it should. Same thing on your car analogy. If you were starting to put the nut on one of your lug nuts and you felt like it was jammed, you would stop Back and restart. Yeah. <laughs> and if you tried it three times and it still didn't work, you'd throw it away <laughs> and you go get another one. And, and we actually have, we have found a few bolts with bad threads and the robots will detect that and then uh, put them in the junk pile. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting because when you're starting like a screw or a bolt, I mean, you are, or a nut, I mean, you, you got to balance it. There's a touch to get right. it just right. It's not all visual. Well, back, you know, I've been doing robots my whole life. So, you know, 40 years ago, robots didn't have a sense of touch. And so... Uh -huh. That, that was huge because the robot would just try to drive the yeah, bolt into that's the hole. What you would think, right? Well, that's not going to work. Yeah. And so now that they have a sense of touch as well as vision and laser detection and everything else, it is only now, 40 years later, that we're able to take industrial robotic technology and apply it to these non-standard environments. My goodness. So, um, okay, so this is the bolt, that's the risers. We use two robots at a time. They're on their the drilling floor of the of the plat the drill rig, whatever it is, boat or whatever, and um, and that is the work of risers. You said you had other technologies here as well. Well, we're we're starting to do uh, uh, grafter robots, so it's it's taking the the smaller components and installing them. So the the beauty of the riser robot is, is there are no uh, combustible gases right. when you're running riser right. and so we tackled that job first it, it's technically challenging but the good news was uh, it didn't require uh, uh, explosion-proof designs right. and because there's there's nothing flammable and so this next job will be actually during the drilling oh. okay so so to add to our troubles we now have to have explosion-proof robots. But well, guess what? Robots have been painting cars since the beginning of time. And that is a, uh, a once again, a, a filthy job, but it's also flammable. And so the technology already exists to make robots function in these environments. We're simply moving them from the paint booth right. to the drill ship. Right. So you said 
dirty. Dull, dirty, dangerous. Dull, dirty, and dangerous. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's right. what robots excel at. Yeah, yeah. They never take a fun job. They never take fun, and that's okay. We'll let them take those jobs because they are dangerous. I tell people that around uh, 1900, half of America worked on the farm. Now that number is less than 2%. The first automation success story in America is agriculture. And yet I have yet to meet anyone saying, that, oh, I wish I was walking behind the mule. <laughs> right. And so you don't fear the robot. The robot's taking, you know, it's plowing the fields. It's doing the dull, dirty, dangerous jobs. Allow the humans to do what they do best, which is more creativity. Right, right. So ARC started as a welding. I was just a kid. Okay, I had to come I up was with a name. Kid. And, uh, okay, but I mean, it was it was arc a welding. welding. Arc welding, and um, you had you you were just into the welding, all kinds of welding for all kinds of jobs and. Right, joining. Uh, you know, you, you're, you know, you're in the oil field, and so you understand this with the the high temperature, high pressure wells that we're now trying to produce. We literally don't have the materials or technology to do some of the worst ones. Right. Right. And. What they're finding is no single set of material properties will suffice. And that's good because what my machines do is they'll reach in to the inner surfaces of valves and pipes and coat them. So now you can oh. have a high strength body yeah. and a corrosion resistant interior. Yeah. You know, it's, it's much like, you know, you, you've got teeth to chew and, and skin for, you know, it's, you're, a single set of material properties is no longer adequate. Right. So I think it's, it's you know, I, I, any youngster that's listening, there are challenges in the oil field that we don't know how to fix. Yeah. And yeah. so in material science and technology, that's why I love the oil field. Right. It's too much fun. Well, it's got every, every major that you have in school, there's a place for it in the oil business. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So you... Uh... Every electric car now is cut with my robots. Oh. Okay. Because uh, the, the new technology in electric cars is... They're casting the chassis rather than making them out of sheet metal. Back in the old days, a chassis would have hundreds of pieces of sheet metal all spot welded together. Everybody's seen the spot welders or the sparks flying off. Okay, well, the, the new way to do that is a casting. Okay, well, the problem is after you cast a big part, you have to trim it. And you have to trim that with plasma cutting. Plasma is the fourth state of matter, right? Uh -huh. There's uh, gas, liquid, solid plasma. Yeah. Okay. Well, the technology that we developed for cutting these extreme materials in the oil field was readily available. Uh, was readily applicable to electric cars. So uh, during COVID, uh, when the oil field wasn't doing very much, right? Uh, we built 13 robots to uh, cut electric car chassis. Wow. That technology came from the oil field. Yeah. Oh, right. Excellent. Excellent. So, so uh, as we are talking about energy transition, uh, you know, that's in the news all the time. Energy transition. Um, we talk about taking the skill sets from the oil field and applying them to um, other energy sectors. For example, geothermal, which is deeper, hotter rock. Um, corrosive at times. Corrosive. Going to need specialty materials. Um, bits that don't break down so quickly, um, and, and even handling the, the, the heat um, at the surface. Now, we have a lot of technologies that there's not a lot of human interaction there, but any technology, any flow stream can be improved 
through some sort of automation, some sort of improvement, even of the materials. So I could certainly see, um, you know, applications there in the future. Um, and then the notion of um, uh, uh, carbon storage, co storing CO2 in depleted oil and gas reservoirs or in saline formations, reservoirs uh, in the, deep in the ground and having to have the um, CO2 stay there forever. Uh, that's, the, uh, that's the goal uh, of carbon storage. Uh, and the notion of specialty materials and putting those materials together so that they are <laughs> they're, they're done properly, being able to use advanced materials, advanced techniques, including welding. Um, mm -hmm. Have you seen changes in welding techniques and styles? I mean, I'm not, a, I did learn how to arc weld Good. in school, but that's all. <laughs> no, that's, that's still the central one. That's the uh -huh. arc welding still does a majority of the joining and, and we do a lot of it. So uh, there, I'll give you a kind of a yes, no answer because everybody's talking about additive manufacturing, right? Okay. That's, that's the new buzzword. That's the buzzword. Well, guess what? Welding has been doing additive for over a hundred years. And so- How is that, how is that additive? Well, what's the definition of additive? You take a small part and make it bigger. Well, that's what welders have been doing from early on. Rewind to uh, 30 years ago and in the nuclear industry, uh, they were making the seats of the valves out of a cobalt alloy, okay? And you get little bits of wear, and uh, small bits of cobalt would flow through the lines, and that the cobalt readily becomes radioactive. That's a problem. So they created a new alloy called no-rim, as in radiation, you know, and so... But it only came in a powder form. And so if you needed a bar or a piece of, of no-rim stock, you could either hot ice or statically press it, but but way back in the, you know, even 30 years ago, we would take a plasma welder and we'd simply start welding and we'd make a stalagmite. Oh. Okay, and we'd build this up. Now you had a cylinder of no rim and then you could cut it into pieces. We didn't realize it. We were on the leading edge <laughs> of additive manufacturing. And that's the way it goes. Right? And that's the way it goes. But, you know, my machines now are used for additive at, uh, all over the place because welding is additive. Yeah, well, it's fascinating to go over to your booth and to see um, see the robots there for building the risers. And what do what's the name? Do they have names like you know Susie and Mary, or <laughs> do they have technical names, or do they have initials? Or what do you uh, call these? Now this one's just a riser, but I've got one fun one though. My, my mentor is named Jeff Post, and uh, he's gone now. But Jeff taught me how to thermally form steel, and and he was taught by a guy named Ray Stitz on third generation. And with a torch, you can create curvatures or you can straighten a curve. And we've just recently applied this technology to the forming of thick metal plates for the hulls of ships. Oh. Okay. And so we, we've gone from a torch to induction heat, from a human to a robot, from visual to 3D imaging. And the point of my story, sorry for taking so long, is we named that robot Jeff. Oh. <laughs> Be because Jeff was the guy that, that, that taught me that. But Excellent. yeah, normally we don't, they don't get a name. But. Excellent. Excellent. But, but you still have to distinguish the uh, robot on the right from the robot on the left or something like that in, in, on the drip. I think it's starboard. Oh, that's right. We're off shore. Yeah, we're on the ship here. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Oh, I guess it's easier then. Okay, I get that. I get that. Easy. Well, this has been fascinating. I had no idea just how exciting this arena could be. 
Um, I, I love my job. I get to go all over the world, yeah. and, and I get I get to create jobs for people. Here's my theory: if everybody had a job, this place would be a peaceful world. That's right. Too busy to cause trouble. Right. <laughs> and, and and so I, I love going around the world and and doing exactly what you talked about, which is technology transfer. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. We need that. We we have uh, standards and. Um, sustainability practices in the United States that do not exist in parts, other parts of the world, parts of the world that produce oil and gas and other parts uh, mm -hmm. that we use for other energy forms. And so we really are grateful to have those kinds of uh, guidelines and guidances and regulations in the United States. Protects us all, protects us all, and um, protects the world as well. So we appreciate that and appreciate that you're taking these technologies to other parts of the world and sort of spreading that protection if you will. So, well this has been delightful talking with you about all this. Do you have some more you want to share about your company or about what you do? I know you do, but um, nah, just, just a couple more minutes. Anybody that's listening in, I encourage you to come down to the Offshore Technology Conference. It's so much fun. You know, you can buy anything from a drill ship to a helicopter <laughs> or, or even a robot. <laughs> or even a robot, that's right. And you come every year. And I'll be, I will continue. We will continue. Absolutely great. Well, Dan Alford, president of ARC Specialties, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it very much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please give us a review and tell us what you like and what you'd like to hear more about on future podcasts. This is Elena Melfort, your host for Oil & Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.